This week marks the 60th anniversary of the Second Vatican Council. Here to discuss the lasting legacy of Vatican II is theologian and author of the new book, To Sanctify the World, George Weigel. The wise men who found Christmas is out in stores this week. Father Gerald Murray interviews me about the book and who these magi from the East really were. And pro-life activists around the country are being arrested by the FBI and charged with allegedly obstructing access to abortion clinics. Ryan Marie Hoke, the wife of Mark Hoke, who's facing federal charges, is here tonight to speak out. The World Over begins right now. Now, Raymond Arroyo. A warm welcome to all of you joining us in the United States and the world over. An important show for you tonight. If you'd like to comment, send me a tweet. I'm at Raymond Arroyo. Lots to cover. Let's get right to it. This week marks the 60th anniversary of the opening of the Second Vatican Council, a council used to justify so many of the changes we've seen during the reign of Pope Francis. What was the original intention of the Council? And why does Vatican II remain so deeply contested in the Catholic Church today? Joining me now to discuss this and much more, senior fellow at the Ethics and Public Policy Center and author of the new book, To Sanctify the World, The Vital Legacy of Vatican II, George Weichel joins us. George, thanks for being here. In your introduction, you write that, quote, the Second Ecumenical Council of the Vatican, Vatican II, in the familiar shorthand, was the most important event in the history of Catholicism since the Council of Trent responded to the various Protestant reformations of the 16th century. How so, George? Raymond, Vatican II was the Church's attempt to reckon with a new situation, a modern world that had become simply irreligious not pagan. Paganism is full of religiosity, however odd or crazy. The modern world was becoming increasingly irreligious, and the wiser spirits in the Catholic Church, including Pope St. John XXIII, knew that the Church had to rekindle its Christ-centered faith in order to respond to that with a new sense of evangelical urgency and missionary energy. Yeah, it, it was a pastoral council, though. How is that more important than the ones that preceded it, that touched on doctrine and uh, to clean up heresies? I mean, those were pretty weighty and important councils as well. I think this distinction between a doctrinal council and a pastoral council is ill-judged, Raymond, and I don't even use it in the book. Uh, Vatican II no, had issued two dogmatic constitutions, one of which affirmed the reality and binding authority of divine revelation over time, which is precisely what is at issue in Germany today. And the second on the Church offered both Catholics and the entire world a richer doctrinal view of what the Catholic Church is. So there was serious teaching at Vatican II. George, in his opening address, uh, Pope John XXIII, when he opened the Council, um, said that its greatest concern must be the more effective and complete presentation of, quote, the sacred deposit of Christian doctrine. 
How did the documents, uh, De Verbum, uh, Lumen Gentium, how did they address that challenge? That opening address of John the 23rd's is, I believe, the best prism through which to read the entire council. Uh, we speak about interpreting the Constitution of the United States through its original intention or original meaning. It's important mm -hmm. to understand what the original intention of John the 23rd was for the council in order to understand its documents. And the original intention was not so much to change the church as to Christify the world. And to do that, the church had to evolve, develop its way of proclaiming the gospel, but it was the same gospel. And the notion that uh, the Second Vatican Council was summoned to reinvent the Catholic Church is both a fundamental misunderstanding of what councils do and a very bad misunderstanding of the solid doctrinal teaching of the Constitution on Divine Revelation, God does speak to the world and we can hear that word, and the teaching of the dogmatic Constitution on the Church, Lumen Gentium, the Church is the template, or as the Council put it, the sacrament of the unity of the human race. Mm. If it was so definitive, Vatican II I'm talking about, and so seismic, George, why are we seeing these debates over core doctrinal issues that we're seeing today? Why are we seeing them continuing into 60 years later? Uh, those debates, Raymond, as you and I have discussed, I think, on several occasions before, actually mm -hmm. began within the Second Vatican Council itself. And they reflected divisions within both the episcopate and, and also uh, in a very sharp way within the world of Catholic theology. The important point to grasp today, I think, is that the living parts of the world church whether we're talking about in North America or sub-Saharan Africa or what shoots of life there are in the church in Western Europe or Latin America, the living parts of the world church are those that have embraced the authoritative interpretation of Vatican II by John Paul II and Benedict XVI, and the dying parts of the world church, Germany, Belgium, the Netherlands, etc., are the ones who are still trying to make this failed project of Catholic light reinvented Catholicism work. Catholic light leads to Catholic zero. That's the empirical fact that should uh, drive this conversation into the future. Yeah, and I want to get back to that in a moment, because that's a crucial point you make about the spirit of Vatican II and the letter, and then the, the, the definitions under the last two pontificates. But regarding the liturgy, George, in your book, you write, in the liturgy, the Council Fathers argued the Church was most itself, and the experience of liturgy ought to be, brought more directly into the Church's theological self-understanding. A renewed, liturgically centered and vibrant Church would, the liturgical movement's leaders believed, both deepen the conversion of the Church's people of Christ and help bring the leaven of the gospel to the world. Did it work? George. I'm not talking about the letter of the documents, which call for the preservation of the Latin and uh, pride of place for Gregorian chant, but did the reformation of the liturgy, if you will, have the intended effect? It's had the intended effect in the living parts of the world church, but we certainly went through a silly season 
in which a lack of liturgical discipline really eviscerated the intention of the council in calling for an organic liturgical reform that had already begun in the 1950s. The Second Vatican Council did not invent the idea of an evolved, reformed Roman rite. Pius XII began that process with the reform of the Holy Week liturgy in the 1950s. Uh, I think today we're coming back to center, although I regard the recent decree from Rome, Traditionis Custodes, as a serious mistake because the availability of the older rite was helping the newer rite become more what the Second Vatican Council intended it to be. Mm -hmm. uh, would you say we're a holier people today? I mean, how did the shape of the Constitution on sacred liturgy, um, uh, uh, why, do you, why do you think it didn't take hold, I guess, is the better way to frame this? The, because the, when you read it today, George, it's so clear. Uh, it, it, they want more participation, but they didn't mean for a dislocation of the Mass, and certainly not a suppression of the Latin Mass, which we're hearing from Rome today. Raymond, I, my view is that a lot of our traditionalist friends are a bit too pessimistic about all of this. Uh, I see holiness all around me in my parish uh, every Sunday. Uh, I see holiness whenever I attend Mass throughout the world. Uh, the sacraments have immense power, and we should remember that, even as we mourn the reduction of too many expressions of the liturgy into mm -hmm. the self-expression of the celebrant. That was the single biggest mistake in the implementation of the Council's Constitution on the Sacred Liturgy, putting the priest's personality at the center of the liturgy. That never was the intention. The liturgy has its own integrity and its own personality mm. of which priest celebrants are the servant. Hmm. I, I want to play something for you, George. Back in 2003, I interviewed our friend, uh, theologian Cardinal Avery Dulles and Archbishop Philip Hannon. Uh, Archbishop Hannon was, of course, present at the council. Uh, Cardinal Dulles was certainly a contemporary of it and a theologian at the time. And I asked Cardinal Dulles what the impact of the liturgical changes of Vatican II were on the people. Listen to this. Well, I think uh, the document is fine uh, mm -hmm. on the, the Constitution the letter, on the sure. liturgy. If people just read that and observed it, uh, there would be really no problem. Mm -hmm. uh, I think there was a tendency to read it uh, in a way that uh, said the only thing is the sacramental liturgy and everything else uh, should be kind of dismissed. Mm -hmm. And so private devotions, for example, suddenly disappeared and evaporated. Mm -hmm. uh, things that were really nourishing the uh, devotion of the faithful. So things that were slightly marginalized, perhaps, by Vatican II, were suddenly excluded in the name of the council, which they never mm -hmm. intended. Mm -hmm. uh, so the, uh, uh, the, uh, uh, everything was reduced to a minimum and uh, the, uh, uh, the liturgy was somehow interpreted as though it were a kind of a celebration of community mm -hmm. rather than adoration of, of God. 
And, and George, really, this remains the challenge at the heart of the faith today. Community, you know, focus on the community rather than adoration of God in liturgy, including the suppression of the old Latin rite, sort of pitting the traditional against the current. I think one of the signs of vitality in the church today, Raymond, 60 years after the opening of the council, is the return of those devotional practices amplified by newer devotional practices that my old friend Cardinal Dulles mentioned in your interview. Mm. The enormous impact of the Divine Mercy devotion on uh, renewing parish life in the United States is, is one example of that. There's a lot more uh, devotion to the rosary today than I think there was 40 or 50 uh, years ago. The revival of Eucharistic adoration uh, even in very tough yeah. neighborhoods, in the, in the old cathedral, the Basilica in Baltimore, which is in uh, the middle of a very distressed city, there is now 24-7 Eucharistic adoration. This is, yeah. this is a recovery of exactly what Cardinal Dulles was lamenting properly, the loss of in the immediate post-conciliar period. Yeah, yeah, and Mother Angelica, our own Mother Angelica, had a big hand in all of that, sort of keeping those popular devotions popular, George, that had fallen out of practice. And people thought, oh, they don't do this anymore. She said, oh, no, no, not only do we do it, we do it regularly and we're going to do it in a big way, which I think was an important sort of cultural standard to plant early on. Uh, on Tuesday, Pope Francis presided over a special evening mass to commemorate the opening of the Second Vatican Council. 60 years ago. In his homily, he praised the Council for having, quote, rediscovered the living river of tradition without remaining mired in traditions. Yet let us be careful. Both the progressivism that lines up behind the world and the traditionalism, or looking backwards, that longs for a bygone world are not evidence of love, but of infidelity. Now, George, I, I get how progressivism by its nature lacks fidelity to establish doctrine. But how does traditionalism bespeak infidelity? Uh, it's unclear to me, Raymond, exactly what the Holy Father meant there. It's unclear to me what he means on several occasions. Um, I come back to the brilliant statement of another old friend, Cardinal Francis George, in his mm. uh, first press conference when he became Archbishop of Chicago, and of course the guy from the Sun-Times or the Tribune or whatever pops up and says, are you a liberal or a conservative? And Cardinal George, who was probably the smartest Catholic bishop in the history of the United States, said the Catholic yeah. Church is not about left or right. It's about true and false. And it would have been useful, it seems to me, to lift that up in Rome on the 60th anniversary of the opening of a council, which, as you rightly noted at the beginning, John XXIII wanted to celebrate as an affirmation of the Church's sacred deposit of faith and a rekindling of the Church's Christ-centered faith in order to get on with evangelizing the world. Yeah. The Pope also blamed, uh, Pope Francis, blamed the temptation to choose sides in an ideological battle on the devil, 
who wants to sow the scandal of division. He said, how often in the wake of the council did Christians prefer to choose sides in the church, not realizing they were breaking their mother's heart? How many times did they prefer to cheer on their own party rather than being servants of all, to be progressive or conservative rather than being brothers and sisters, to be on the right or the left rather than with Jesus? Let us overcome all polarization and preserve our communion, end quote. But what do you make of that, given what we see happening in the church today, George? It's, it's a noble sentiment, and I certainly share it. Uh, I do think there's an awful lot of siloing uh, in, in the church today, but that, that is not uh, helped. That problem of siloing is not resolved or solved by the kind of action that we saw from the Holy See last year in respect of the celebration of the traditional Latin Mass. Why are we punishing people who are going to Mass when the single biggest practical pastoral issue facing the church around the world after the pandemic is getting people back to Mass? This just really doesn't make a lot of sense. No. Uh, I, I want to play something else for you. This is Archbishop Hannon on Vatican II. And this is how uh, the, the Archbishop explained the failure of the laity to embrace the teaching of Vatican II. Listen to this. Basically, uh, I don't think that John, Pope John XXIII thought that this was going to be such an enormous thing, 16 documents. Mm -hmm. Now, and each one of them is very, very weighty. We did not have any time to teach the people because all of a sudden at the end, 1965, everything was supposed to go into effect. Uh, and it was impossible to instruct the people in all these changes. Mm. And that's the reason why, in my opinion, there was this great deal of turmoil. Now, George, you argue in your book the Second Vatican Council was never meant to rupture Catholic doctrine, only to better communicate the unchanging uh, Catholic truths, and that the Church was in the middle of a civilizational crisis. Looking back, though, is the Catholic Church any more relevant today than it was before Vatican II? Uh, I, Archbishop Haddon makes, makes a good point there. Uh, there was a rush to implementation that I think, in retrospect, was very mm -hmm. ill-advised. Uh, the Archbishop of Krakow, Karol Wojtyla, led a nine-year implementation process in his diocese before he became Pope John Paul II, and nothing was done for four years, while thousands of discussion groups around the diocese—this is under communism, mind you—read the documents right. of Vatican II with the help of a guide provided by the Archbishop. That was not done sufficiently, really, just about— mm -hmm any place else. I think, Raymond, the Church has, in the documents of the Second Vatican Council, its teaching that Jesus Christ review, reveals both the face of the Father of mercies and the truth about our humanity, in its teaching that the Church is a sacrament of the unity of the human race, uh, has developed a message that this postmodern world desperately needs to hear. So, yes, I mm. think the Council's teaching is even more relevant today in a world yeah. of trans ideology and all the rest of it. Last week, the Vatican Synod 
the Twitter page tweeted out the following. Now, this is from Cardinal Mario Gresh. He is the Secretary General of the Synod of Bishops, uh, about to reexamine everything anew in the upcoming year. He said, quote, a correct reception of the Council's ecclesiology is activating such fruitful processes as to open up scenarios that not even the Council had imagined, and in which the action of the Spirit that guides the Church is made manifest. George, this seems awfully like what you were just saying. This is a—and the problem is it's not just Eastern Europe. It's the seat of Catholicism. It's Rome embracing the spirit of Vatican II and basically saying everything's up for grabs. Well, everything isn't up for grabs, Raymond, and that was a singularly unfortunate statement from, from Cardinal Grech. Uh, and it's a misinterpretation of the Council. Uh, in a very, very severe way. Um, this synodal, synodality talk is too often a cover for advancing the Catholic light project. And I think it needs to be called out for that. If we are going to have a genuine discussion about the Catholic future in October of next year, let's look at where the Council has been successfully implemented where there is vibrant evangelization going on, where there are living religious orders. Let's not take Germany as a template for the church of the future, because it manifestly is not. Uh, George, in your book, you write, and I think correctly, um, that Popes John Paul II and Benedict XVI, both major figures present at the Council itself, that they provided the authoritative keys of understanding Vatican II in that 35-year period after the Council. What were the keys to understanding Vatican II, and does the current hierarchy of the Church agree with you? The master key, as I suggested in, in the book, was the was provided by the Extraordinary Senate of 1985, which said the Church is a communion of disciples in mission. Friendship with the Lord Jesus is the beginning of the Church. The body of Christ exists for mission in the world. If you read the documents of the Vatican, of the Second Vatican Council through that lens, you get the living parts of the world Church. I think most of the episcopate of the Church today, certainly in the living parts of the world Church, uh, has grasped that and is getting on with what John Paul II uh, called the new evangelization. But I am not prepared to read the Catholic future through the demise of Catholicism in Northwestern Europe. That is just a fundamental mm -hmm. mistake, nor am I prepared to take that, and particularly this German synodal way, which is a complete mm -hmm. fraud in terms of uh, actual yeah. serious theological discussion, as a template for the mm -hmm. universal church. That just cannot happen in October of 2023 in Rome. Well, well, George, when I read your book, and again, you are, you are trying to properly situate the Vatican Council, not only historically, but in the theological evolution as, as seen, as you said, the keys to understanding it were furnished by the last two popes, that 35-year span. But it seems we're almost trying to edit that out now and pretend that the Holy Spirit was not operable for the last 35 years through the prophetic teachings of John Paul II and Benedict XVI. The liturgical understanding is being trashed. Uh, John Paul's moral teaching, trashed. And Cardinal Mueller last week called it a hermeneutic of rupture, what we're seeing today. Is it? 
Yeah, I think Cardinal Mueller was right in picking up that phrase of, of Pope Benedict XVI. But again, let's not read the entire world Catholic reality through the prism of what's going on in Rome today. Rome is not the sum total of the Catholic Church. And that stuff is not going on in the living parts of the world church. The deep problem mm -hmm. in Rome is that it doesn't understand this. It does not seem to grasp right now that all-in Catholicism, as you and I have described it before, really mm -hmm. has a chance to convert the world, while Catholic light is a universal failure. That has got to be mm. front and center at any synod next year on the future of the church. Mm. George, last month, Pope Francis uh, visited Assisi. It was a gathering of about 1,000 young people from 120 countries at a meeting they called uh, on the new economy, um, also known as the Economy of Francesco, a 2019 initiative created by Pope Francis to address the world's economic problems. Now, the event featured presentations that questioned capitalism and present development models. During his keynote speech at the end of the event, Pope Francis spoke of the economics of plants, uh, an initiative, uh, or innovative, rather, theme proposed by some of the young participants. Here's what he said. Plants know how to cooperate with the whole surrounding environment. And even when competing, they're actually cooperating for the good of the ecosystem. We learn from the mildness of plants. Their humility and silence can offer us a different style that we urgently need. Good living is the mysticism that the aboriginal peoples teach us to have with the earth, end quote. Why the focus, do you think, on tribal life uh, and uh, pagan tribal life and not Christian civilization as the ideal for society, where the focus is on God and Christ and his church to solve the problems of the youth in the world? That, that's a good question, Raymond. I, I have to re recall, uh, as you may, my friend Fran Mayer's commentary on that plant uh, discourse in which he said, yeah. there are, yeah, okay, there are good plants and then there are weeds, and the weeds tend to <laughs> choke the good plants. So let's not paint this a picture true. of, you know, benign uh, nature here. Uh, yeah. this, this appeal to a kind of uh, Gaia worship is really misplaced, it seems to me. Yes, we are called to be stewards of the environment. Yes, rubbishing the environment is a bad thing to do. But so is providing jobs for people. So is tilling the earth so that the earth provides abundance for people. Uh, you know, the Holy Father always talks about, you know, somebody told him that if all arms sales were stopped, uh, everybody in the world would be fed. The problem with feeding the world today is corrupt governments in the third world. It's not the unavailability of food. The Green Revolution has made food abundant throughout the world for the first time in human history. Let's get the bad guys correctly identified here and stop this business about appealing to what are essentially uh, irreligious concepts of nature and its ultimate benignity. 
In, in your book, you reference the battle, uh, George, and I think correctly, over the uh, proper interpretation of the council waged by theological reformers who disagreed with whether its teaching constituted a rupture with tradition. Today, as the church continues this two-year synodal uh, evolution uh, accompaniment, the battle lines have shifted and the reformers seem to be seeking to modify church discipline and really calling for an entirely new model of the church. Your thoughts on where we are now, where this is headed? I'm not sure where it's headed, Raymond, but I was in Rome the last week of August, spoke to a number of churchmen from the third world, including some of the new cardinals, and they are simply uninterested in the German agenda for the church or the kind of synodal discussion that you referenced from Cardinal Grech uh, a few moments ago. They're just not interested in this. They are about the business of the new evangelization. And I think mm -hmm. there's going to be a great surprise uh, if and when this synod gathers in Rome next October at the lack of interest in replicating the German catastrophe among the rest of the world church. And perhaps the Germans are going to be the most surprised. Yeah. It, it, it strikes me as sort of a dime store of Vatican III, George. I mean, the way it's constructed, the obvious, you know, uh, trial balloons sent out, uh, and the selection of who is running this agenda. But uh, like you, when, you talk, when I talk to cardinals, when I talk to people who, who are going to have to sit there and listen to this, they don't seem to be terribly on board with this agenda. The, the single biggest problem that needs to be addressed between now and next October is the process of that synod. As it is presently proposed, there will be no votes by the participating bishops. There will be, there will be lots of discussion that is then summarized, presumably by people carefully chosen by the synod general secretariat and Cardinal Grech. Those summaries will then be given to the pope who will then do whatever he pleases. This is not synodality in any meaningful sense of the term. Uh, so mm -hmm. that process really needs to be reexamined. And above all, those bishops are going to be, have to be allowed to vote on propositions, which are the normal way a synod assembly makes its judgments known. Mm -hmm. Yeah, no, I, but the, I have to say, after reading your book, George, and it's, I think it's important for people to read it now, because Vatican II is being invoked as uh, the reason and the cause for this synodality we're seeing underway. And just as, as we end here, do you see a link here between this process and what Vatican II was calling for? Uh, not really, Raymond. Um, it, it always takes the Church a hundred years to digest the meaning of, of an ecumenical council. We're still in the middle, in the midst of digesting the meaning of Vatican II. Uh, to Sanctify the World, the Vital Legacy of Vatican II by George Weigel is available now at bookstores everywhere and online, including EWTN's religious catalog. Uh, the timing could not be better, George, uh, considering how Vatican II is in the air again and, uh, you know, on every top of everyone's minds in Rome, certainly. Thank you for being here. Thank you, Raymond. Tonight, we have something a little special for you. On the occasion of the release of my new book, A Wise Man Who Found Christmas, I thought I shouldn't do the segment alone. But we'd bring somebody in to interview me, and who better than my papal posse member, Father Gerald Murray.
And so, Father agreed to do it, so I'm going to give him the reins from here on. Raymond, thank you for the, in the first place for asking me to do this, and it's a pleasure to interview you after so many years of being on the other side of the camera, so to speak. <laughs> but right. congratulations for this wonderful book. Uh, and my thank first you. question is, um, you know, we read the scriptures and we go to Mass on Epiphany, but do what we know about the wise men not really correspond to the facts? What have you found out? Well, you know, I, I, I had the same expectations that I think everybody has, that they were three kings, that they came from the Far East or were Persians, um, you know, and, and, and that there were three of them. It turns out all of that is wrong, Father, all of it. They were not three kings. They did not come from the Far East. In fact, uh, Justin Martyr, Clement of Rome, uh, Josephus, they all say the wise men came from the East east of Judea in some of those renderings. So we know they didn't come from where we expect they did. So where did they come from? So I started digging. And what I found, I have to tell you, it surprised and it shocked me. So I wanted to kind of capture all of this research. And look, it took me a year to pull this together. And these are uh, translations of ancient texts and talking to biblical scholars and archaeologists. It's really the fruit of their work. And I thought, how do I best uh, contain this? I'm going to put this in a story and try to capture the adventure that I believe these three wise men, these magi, went on. But magi, Father, these are uh, soothsayers, stargazers, magician. The, the word magi is the, is the, the antecedent to magic and magician. Uh, and they were oftentimes consultants to a king. They advised the king on what to do. They were highly educated. Many of them were trained in the Babylonian or the Greek uh, uh, stargazing or lunar cycles, so they were familiar with that. And in the case of these wise men, and I think it's because of where they lived, where they, where they were uh, uh, housed, they had access to the Jewish uh, prophecies of the Messiah. I believe they came from Petra, which is just on the other side of the Dead Sea from Judea, from Jerusalem. So if they came from Petra, where were they? They were in the kingdom of Nabate. Uh, Herod, King Herod's mother, was a princess from the kingdom of Nabate. So there's an interesting connection there that we can get into later, but um, these wise men clearly saw something, and they were drawn, I think, not only by the wonder of that star, but by the prophecies and their personal relationship to those prophecies. That's what drew them on. And look, it was a, it's a high-stakes adventure for them, and that's what I tried to recapture here. So families understand that oftentimes pursuing the truth is dangerous, uh, exciting, and of an adventure, and it's one we should all go on. So the great hymn that we all sing on Epiphany, We Three Kings of Orient, uh, that really is yeah. not the case. The Magi weren't kings, but on the other hand, they were associates of the king in Nabatea. Who was that yes. king? Well, that king was King Aratus. And, you know, like that great song, they were from the Orient. Orient just means the East, but the proximate East, not the Far East that we've been led to believe. You know, the kings from all over the world came to Jesus. No, they were right there from Nabatea. And that King Aratus... He probably, the wise men likely, and in my telling, and in, in the, the historical research I've done, they likely went to the king and said, look, 
we've seen this star. There's a new Messiah, a new king to be born in Judea. And in the mind of King Aretas, he's thinking, Herod just had a kid, so go bring him tribute. And that's why he sends them. They're really, you almost have to think of them as a royal delegation. They're really a, a, a group of royal diplomats sent from Nabate to Judea, really to keep the peace, because Herod was a murderous, difficult, horrible guy. As you see, when he finds out that the wise men have given him the slip and he doesn't know where the Christ child is, he just decides to put a capital punishment on every child in the kingdom. He kills every child under two. So um, he's a, he's a, he was a brutal guy. And I think both King Aratus in Nabate, as well as these wise men, probably had a good idea who Herod was. So the wise men had studied the Jewish scriptures. They were familiar with the expectation of the people of Israel. Uh, they saw the star. What mm -hmm. do you think that star was? Well, the, the star, and Father, this is a, a point of contention for astrologers and, and, and historians, and I'm not even going to try to get in the middle of it. Uh, it may be a conjunction. Uh, Michael Molnar, the, uh, the astrologist, he, or astronomer rather, he believes that this was a conjunction of two planets, that it was Jupiter in the constellation of Aries, and in the minds of these wise men, they interpreted that as a new king being born in Judea. Okay? That's one interpretation. Others, uh, you know, I spoke to a, a Cambridge uh, scientist the other day. He believes, after studying this, that it might be three astral events, that it could have been a, a group of planets coming together one year, the next year three planets clustering, which would have made a very bright star, and finally a comet that, that, that sort of hovered over the house that the wise men ultimately found the Christ child in. But, Father, all of that, to my mind, I mean, it's a fun curiosity in a parlor game. The star that they saw, we may never settle. But the more important lesson for us is the wise men, following the advice almost of St. Paul, they kept their eyes on the things of above. They're, they set their mind above and not on the things of earth. That's the lesson for us, not only at Christmas, but throughout the year. These wise men were always searching and yearning and using the knowledge they were given to pursue the truth and find the truth. And I think when you earnestly do that, you can't help but find what you're looking for. Absolutely. No, that's actually the, uh, the deeper gospel message. We could say that the light that they were searching actually was in the baby in the manger because he is the light right. of the world. And that light uh, yeah. radiates out, not simply by looking uh, around us, but looking for Christ who is in our souls and uh, through grace uh, exercises influence in the world. Let me go back to a couple of other questions, which I find interesting because, yeah. of course, I'm a historian uh, going back to my college days. What about the names that yeah. we find uh, usually attached to the oh. Magi? Are those in the Bible? I don't recall those in the scriptures. Well, not only are the names not in the Scripture, and again, this, this shows you how cultural uh, accretions, uh, fictional additions, have kind of gotten added into this story over time. People often think they're three wise men. Father, the Scripture is silent on that. All the Scripture tells us is that there are three gifts, 
The wise men, if you believe the Coptic church, they say there were 12 wise men. There are Armenian and Syrian texts that claim there were 60, six zero wise men. Um, if, if you look at the open of my book, there's that spread where the, you see the three primary wise men pointing up to the star, finding it. But behind them are nine other guys. Uh, in, in my conception, that's a little uh, illustrated wink to another theory that I think is far much more than a theory, that there might have been 12 of these so-called wise men or magi, and that they may have their roots in the first temple royal priesthood. And just to give you the quick rundown on this, uh, a, a wonderful Cambridge-educated biblical scholar who reads all the old languages, uh, her name's Margaret Barker, has done a lot of study on this. Uh, Margaret Barker claims that 700 years before Jesus, and this is in the scriptures, um, King Josiah expelled that first royal priesthood from the temple. He expels them. Where do they go? They go to Arabia, probably Petra. Margaret Barker makes the conjecture that these could be the descendants of that royal priesthood. And so, yes, they have, were familiar with the astrological uh, and astral charts and were reading the skies, but the prophecies of the Old Testament still beat deep within them, and they were looking for a Messiah. So it makes sense. By the way, she also told me, and I didn't realize this, on the, on the roof of the old temple, the first temple, there were astrological charts and indicators. So it was not something that the ancient Hebrews were unaccustomed to, reading the stars and looking to the stars and considering that an expression of God. But you asked about those three names, Casper uh, and Mel Melchior and Balthazar. The names actually don't show up till about the fifth century. And then we know it best later in the 8th century when uh, Venerable Bede uh, really uses those names and gives them attributes. He says, you know, Melchior's the old man, and uh, Balthazar is a black magi, and Caspar uh, 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 is the young, ruddy magi. So he kind of affixes and sets those characters, if you will. Now, in my book, I kept those because they're popular and people know them, but, um, but we indicate the larger history. We don't know what their names are. That's the reality. But uh, I thought it was important to try to rescue these wise men from a lot of the fables and the mythology, because the reality is far more interesting, I think. What we do know, though, is in the scriptures are the three gifts. Now, what is your theory about why those yes. gifts were selected? Well, this tells, this is another clue, Father, and it's a, it really is a clue to the origins of these wise men, where they hailed from, where they lived. Um, if you look at history, and, and when I was writing uh, The Wise Men Who Found Christmas, I did a lot of exploration of where could they be? Could they be in Persia? Well, the Magi were spent in Persia. In fact, there was a, a I won't get into it all, but there was a coup in Persia, and the Magi were involved, so they were suppressed, and that happened long before Jesus came along. So they probably did not come from Persia. Also, the Parthians who were running the joint at the time wouldn't have any, had any reason to send Magi to Judea and to Herod. But Nabate, the kingdom of Nabate, current day Petra, what is that known for? Well, gold, first of all, they controlled the, what's been popularly known as King Solomon's mines, the mines of Midian, that was controlled by Nabate. 
frankincense and myrrh. Those are tree resins, the sap of trees. Where are those trees? Arabia. So Nabate made frankincense and myrrh. Frankincense is burned in all the Roman homes at the time and throughout the empire. And myrrh, of course, makes an appearance in the scripture. Uh, they give it to Jesus to take the pain away when he's on the cross. So all of these little threads lead us back again to Nabate. And just to complete the loop here, Father, and again, this is going a little out on a limb, but I don't think when you look at the research, when you dig deep, particularly into the old sources, Philo of Alexandria, who is writing at the time of Jesus, describes three things that were markers, if you will, of the royal priesthood. The first is gold. In the vestments of the royal priests, there was gold woven into those vestments. Frankincense was burned in the old temple. And most importantly, what was kept in the Holy of Holies? Myrrh, myrrh oil, because it was used, and it was only in the first temple. When the second temple came along, they didn't use myrrh anymore. But in the first temple, myrrh was used to anoint members of the royal priesthood. So one might make the leap, and I don't think it's so far a leap, that these magi were going not only to give gifts to this Messiah, but to restore the first temple and welcome the Messiah into the royal priesthood. He was restoring the ancient ways, if you will, or the ancient times, as that term wise men from the East, Margaret Barker reminded me, wise men from the East in Hebrew can be translated to wise men from ancient times, which is an interesting clue as well. So I, I was just fascinated. Once I got down this rabbit hole, Father, I, I, I never looked back, and it, it sort of exploded the importance of the wise men, uh, their search, their journey, and most importantly, the wonder of the light that they sought, the Christ child. Yes, and, you know, the Feast of Epiphany is, on the Christian calendar, one of the most important feasts. In fact, in the ancient days, it was even more important than Christmas itself because it was the revelation of the man-god to the nations. In what way do the Magi represent more than simply these wise? Do they represent uh, all those searching unknowingly for the Messiah, the, the promised Savior of the Jews and of the Gentiles? Well, I, I think between the shepherds and the Magi, you have all of humanity. You have the simple and you have the learned. And all are looking to the stars. All are looking and yearning for God. Uh, what I love about the Magi is they were educated. They did know um, not only the prophecies and what they were looking for, but they knew the dangers standing between what they were looking for and where they were in Petra. And in my telling of the story, you, you know, you'll see them on Arabian horses running through the desert. It was only a three or five day journey from Petra. So it wasn't that far. We often hear that they went forever or they had camels. Their, their caravan may have had camels, but for speed and efficiency, the Arabian horse was the way to go. And that had already been, was, was well known and used throughout Arabia at the time. So I, I like to think of the Magi now as a little bit of all of us, Father. Um, 
maybe with more boldness and bravery than most of us have. And that's why I wanted to frame this as a picture book. So families could go on this adventure. I've got an author's note in the back that explains the historical roots and why I made certain choices in the book. But I wanted us to re-explore this and rediscover uh, th these wise men and stop taking them for granted. We have a way of putting these figures beneath the Christmas tree or confining them to nativities, and they almost become unreal. I wanted the reality of these guys to be front and center, because if you can establish the reality of the wise men, it's easier to establish the reality then of the Holy Family and the Christ child himself. No, I absolutely agree with you on that. And one of the aspects that I think, you know, our, our listeners and viewers need to hear about is adventure, because as you say in this book, this was, uh, you know, a journey with some peril. Herod was a violent man. They were emissaries looking for a king. Herod was surprised, yeah. all the rest. Isn't faith yeah. in our modern age, when there's so much denial of God and, and of revelation, isn't that an adventure that we need to take up with the same spirit as the wise men? Well, that, that, that's part of why I wanted to tell this story in this way. It's a, and you'll see the illustrations are lush, and, and uh, Diane LaFayer did such a spectacular job not only nailing the historical uh, specificity and reality of this time period, but she also captured that battle between the light and the darkness. And, and I mean, you feel it on those pages. And it is an adventure. Faith is an adventure. It's maybe the greatest adventure of all. And that's why I thought it was important to put these staid, tired kings in their proper context and show them as rambunctious, bold, uh, forthright, and, and adventurous men on a pursuit, on a mission. And they were willing to risk everything, including the, um, not only their own lives, but the, the, the good stead with their king. I mean, Remember, at the end of this, when the angel tells them, go home a different way, don't go home the way you came, they, they not only go and hide out somewhere else, because chances are, if you offend Herod, you're also offending King Aretas, because they were an alliance. They were in a trade alliance. They needed each other. So these wise men really put themselves in great peril to find this Christ child and then to continue telling his story through time, as some believe they did. Well, Raymond, uh, the book is a, is a real success story uh, between the artwork, your historical recounting. It's, it's beautiful. Uh, I'm sure people are going to enjoy it. Father, thank you for taking the reins, uh, so to speak. Here. Oh, absolutely. Not the Arabian, but the reins of the interview. <laughs> so nice of Father to do that with me. The Wise Men Who Found Christmas is now available at bookstores everywhere and online. It's a spectacular read for the whole family, and I hope you'll come see me on tour. I'll be in the Los Angeles area next week at the Reagan Library on October 18th and the Barnes & Noble at the Grove on October 19th at 11 a.m. Then on to Florida at the Village's Barnes & Noble on October 23rd. Go to RaymondArroyo.com. All the details are there, and you can pre-order, or order now, a signed edition from Premier Collectibles at RaymondArroyoBook.com. And, of course... The book's available at the EWTN catalog and wherever books are sold. A Catholic pro-life activist was arrested in connection with an alleged altercation with an abortion escort outside a clinic that occurred about a year ago in Philadelphia. 
The Department of Justice seems to be focusing its efforts these days on nonviolent pro-life activists. Joining me to discuss is Ryan Marie Hauk. She is the wife of Mark Hauk, who is facing federal charges for that aforementioned altercation. And the Hauk attorney, Peter Breen, senior counsel at the St. Thomas More Society, joins us as well. Thank you both for being here. Ryan Marie, tell us a little about Mark and his work and why you think he's now the target of this federal prosecution. Sure. Well, um, Mark, uh, we met um, about 14 years ago, and we actually met outside um, during a prayerful witness of um, an abortion clinic down in Philadelphia. Um, we didn't know um, what one another looked at like, but um, I immediately knew who he was. <laughs> um, he was um, the most uh, courageous person there. Um, and, uh, you know, was just um, praying with his hands up. And um, and I knew immediately that um, we were going to meet. <laughs> so, um, Why do you think he's being prosecuted now, Ryan Murray? Um, uh, because of his, um, his effectiveness down there. He, um, I mean, he has saved countless babies' lives. Um, just being down there, praying the rosary, um, offering literature, um, just being there for the women, the men, the couples that go in there, um, you know, and he's also there mm. for the women that didn't choose life and that have come out and fallen crying in his arms, you know, um, he's there for healing for them too. Mm. Peter, you are the attorney for the family. From what's being reported, uh, local authorities had assessed this altercation between Mark and this Planned Parenthood volunteer. He allegedly pushed, um, and, and they decided not to press charges. The alleged victim then filed a private criminal complaint, which the courts threw out because the guy couldn't even be bothered to show up at the hearing. So how and why do a swarm of FBI agents suddenly show up at Mark Houck's home and arrest him a year after this alleged incident, and give us a sense of that incident. Certainly. Uh, what, what happened was the local courts, when they threw this out, it should have ended there. In May of this year, uh, while Mark was at the clinic, federal agents served him with a target letter, which said in the letter, uh, it said, please contact us. We, we want to talk to your attorneys. And so we at the Thomas More Society made two phone calls, wrote a, a, a detailed communication telling the U.S. Attorney's Office that they don't have a case here. Uh, we won a case on similar facts three years ago in the Eastern District of Pennsylvania. But if you do want to prosecute regardless, we will present Mark in response to a summons, which is the way you do that in the federal system. No response. The next response we got, though, was on September 23rd, that fateful day, uh, where we got a communication saying, we have your client in custody. Uh, and it was on that morning, mm -hmm. 7 o'clock in the morning, where you've got 20 to 30 federal agents, uh, also state troopers, there with long guns, uh, big ballistic shields, battering rams, covering the Hawks' uh, front lawn in cars and pounding mm -hmm. on that door, nearly pounding it open. Uh, and, you know, Mark answering uh, his children there, Ryan Marie there. Uh, and and right. when, you look, when you look at that, there was not a need for a single agent to to leave you know the the, the service of taking down actual criminals mm -hmm. much less sending 20 uh, and as we've pointed out yeah. look we were going to present him if they really wanted to find a spot to get mark you know to, to pick him up they actually wanted to arrest him 
You could find him every week there at the Planned Parenthood. Peter, uh, Mark has pleaded not guilty to these federal charges in connection with this alleged altercation. Um, you know the government's argument. They're accusing him of violating the Freedom of Access to Clinics to Clinic Entrances Act, the FACE Act, which makes it a federal crime to use force uh, with intent to injure, intimidate, or interfere with anybody obtaining or providing reproductive health care services. Now, if convicted, Mark could spend 11 years in prison. Uh, what are you expecting, A, and why do you think the government has made such a big show of force in this case and elsewhere? Well, it is purely intended to intimidate. And I know that it has, because our clients have called us from all over the country. We represent sidewalk counselors everywhere. And uh, the point is that when you are sidewalk counseling, normally, 99% of the time, no issues. But occasionally, you have a very aggressive abortion escort, and there can be some jostling. Uh, there's invasion of personal mm -hmm. space, things like that. Those are not federal violations, because the whole point of the federal law was mm -hmm. to stop folks from blocking the abortion clinics. And when you're out there on the sidewalk, again, we won this case just three years ago in the Eastern District, where there's an altercation where you're dealing with, you know, is it my personal space or yours, where that is not a federal violation at all. Here, it's even worse, because the this 72-year-old man left the gates of the Planned Parenthood, walked down to uh, Mark's young, then 12-year-old son, and harassed him. That 72-year-old man should have known better, and they were nowhere near any patients or even near the entrance of the clinic. So this is clearly not a federal violation. So, and, and I'll tell you, Raymond, we we take this very, very seriously. We've hired the best criminal defense mm -hmm. attorney in Philadelphia. He's one of the best in the country. Uh, and so we are planning to take this to trial and to win it there. Uh, we've set up a website, defendlifetoday.com, defendlifetoday.com, to help folks with updates and to financially support the case as well, uh, to help us you know, yeah. give the DOJ a big black eye and make them go back and stop doing this to anyone else. Ryan, yeah, Ryan Marie, Mark is not the only pro-life activist who the FBI and the Department of Justice have gone after in recent weeks. Uh, last week, pro-life activist Chet Gallagher's home was raided by the FBI. Chet had been peacefully advocating for the protection of the unborn at an abortion clinic in Tennessee last year. What is your thought as you see this pattern of pro-life individuals like your husband prosecuted by the federal government in this way? Um, I, I feel like it's just, it's tragic um, that our that our government is, is doing this. Um, I'm confused by it all. Um, it's, I'm heart sick about it. Um, obviously our situation, I'm heart sick over, you know, what has happened to my children. Um, and I know that other children have been um, victimized and terrorized and traumatized as well. And mm -hmm. it's just as a mother, um, it's just something that you would never expect would happen in this country. Yeah. Peter, uh, in the final minutes here, um, I, and I'm curious as I look at the, the country as a whole, we're seeing these pro-life folks rounded up with, uh, you know, FBI agents and battering rams. Uh, at the same time, there are reports of pro-life pregnancy centers being attacked and no arrests are being made. There have been over 80 attacks like these across the country. What do you make of this disconnect? And what is the message the Biden administration's Department of Justice is trying to send to pro-life Americans? Well, here we are on the eve of an election, and what is the focus of the Department of Justice? It's trying to paint peaceful pro-life Americans as, as some sort of criminals. 
So you've got 150, now we're over 150 instances of, of vandalism, firebombing, et cetera, at pregnancy centers and pro-life churches, zero arrests. And now you're looking at double-digit arrests for peaceful pro-life people, uh, folks like Mark who didn't even violate the law at all, even folks that, uh, that may have blocked access but did so in an extremely peaceful manner, singing hymns. You know, they're having, you know, FBI agents with long guns coming out, corralling their children. I mean, horrible, horrible things happening to innocent families, putting them at grave risk. So it's clear the message is intimidation to our folks, to, to pro-life people and people of faith, and to the whole country on the eve of an election, trying to say those pro-lifers, you know, they're criminals. Hmm. Ryan Marie, before I let you go, I know there's been an online fund started for Mark. How can people help? Um, you know, pray for us, um, pray for all, um, for life for us all who are persecuted and, um, and, and stand up for the truth, you know, um, get out there and, um, and stand in the gap, uh, just as he did. Okay. We will leave it there. Ryan Marie Hauk and Peter Breen, thank you both for being here. We will continue to follow Mark's trial and this case as it moves forward. Thank you both. Thank you. Thank you. That is all the time we have for now. Be sure to catch us next week. Until then, we'll be scouting the world over for all that is seen and unseen.